welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Good morning. Uh, good to see you guys. Please stand and join us in worship.
worthy of every song we could ever sing worthy of all the praise we could ever bring worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you the name above every other name Jesus the only one who could ever save worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you oh we live for you
Almighty God, we praise you this morning, our Heavenly Father. In this time of so much uncertainty, thank you for the great certainty. You rule. You rule over everything that is unnerving us. You are greater than anything coming against us. We look to you and we say, you are the great God because this circumstance is nothing to you. We praise you as the wise one, righteous and holy. And when we confess our sins to you today as you ask and tomorrow and the next day, you will be loving us. When we get it right, you love us. When we fail, you love us. Thank you that our welcome with you is always sure. We are acceptable in your sight because of Jesus Christ. Thank you that our help is in you and not in ourselves. Guide Pastor Steve and our church leaders and board in all their decisions. Give them rest and protection and accord and blessing. Guide the leaders of our city and state and nation according to your will and plan. As we gather here to worship, we are your people. As we step into this new week, we are yours. May our trust and peace be in who you are and unshaken by earthly things. You are our Father, our Redeemer, the one who loves us. All praise to you, Almighty God. Amen. Well, good morning, La Jolla Community Church. You may be seated. My name is Ryan Sylvia. I am the student ministries director here at La Jolla Community Church, and I just want to welcome you all to our wonderful church on this Sunday morning. Thank you, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I would love to bring your attention to a few things you should have gotten on your way in. There's a couple of cards in that little pamphlet that you picked up on your way in. Um, the first card that I would love to bring everybody's attention to is this Get Connected card. We at La Jolla Community Church believe in connecting, plugging in, getting plugged in in all ministries. If you would like to get plugged into some ministry here at La Jolla Community Church, we would love to get you plugged in. But we need you to fill out that card. Let us know how we can get you plugged in. We need all kinds of help in worship ministries, in youth ministries, children's ministries, ushers, greeters, whatever you would like to get plugged in, men's ministry, women's ministry. If you're just craving to serve some people, let us know how you would like to serve and we would love to get you plugged in. So please take a moment, fill out that little card so that we can get you connected and plugged in. The second card that I would love to bring everybody's attention to is that prayer request card. We here at La Jolla Community Church are a family that believes in the power of prayer. Speaking of believing in the power of prayer, if you see Kalina walking around uh, after the service, just pray for her. Give her a little bit of love. Uh, nothing bad's going on. We are, um, Kalina's just moving on to a new season in her life, and we want to send her a little bit of love. So I believe in the power of prayer. If you see her, spend some time. Pray with her. I know she hates me for doing that. I'm sorry, Kalina. I love you. Um, I just love praying over people. I love caring for people. It's my favorite thing that we get to do every single week is to love on our family and pray for them. So if you've got something difficult going on in your life, you got a transition you're not sure how to deal with. you got a boss that you're not sure what to do with. Hey, you got something wonderful and amazing that happened in your life. Please write it down. Please let us know how we can pray for you because prayer is real. It is wonderful. It is amazing. So please take a moment. Fill out that prayer request card. Let us know how we can love on you, how we can pray for you this week. That being said, with the prayer request cards, the connect card, and then the offering envelope that is in your packet, you can just drop those off. There is a box mounted on the wall in the sanctuary as well as in the Welcome Center. Hi, Welcome Center people. Hope everybody is doing wonderful over there. Um, and with that, I would like to invite Pastor Steve up. Thank you all so much for joining us, and have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, thank you, Kalina. Thank you. That was fantastic. Oh, and the band, whoever they are, wherever they go. No. Thank you. Oh, and that prayer, Laura, you lift us into the presence of God on that music and that prayer. Uh, let me just pray and we'll go home. I mean, this has been good. It's been very good. And uh, so, how many of you have ever seen up close and personal the Golden Gate Bridge? I'm just curious, a show of hands, the Golden Gate Bridge. Okay, you need to get out more, apparently, some of you, uh, but otherwise, you can't miss it. Come on. Uh, drive up to Northern California and see the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, I saw the Golden Gate Bridge for the first time when I was 11, uh, I was so disappointed. I was so disappointed. And my mom looked at me and she goes, what? What's wrong? I said, I, I, I don't, uh, it's, it's not gold. <laughs> she said, do you thought it was gold? I said, well, golden gate? Yeah, I thought it was gold, uh, but no, it was orange. It was technically orange vermilion. 
uh, or in the common parlance of those who really know the bridge, is called international orange. At that point, I didn't care. It wasn't gold. I thought, it's the Golden Gate Bridge. It's misrepresented. I've come all this way, and I can't believe what I'm seeing. Now, you think this is a silly thing, but for me, it was one of those points in my life where everything around me was sort of coming apart. My family, and we're moving to a new place, and now the bridge is not gold. You know, it was one of those depressing moments for me. Uh, Why call it the Golden Gate Bridge? Well, as it turns out, it spans what's called the Golden Gate Straits. And I think because all the gold goes right up from the Straits to Sacramento and lands there, I think that's kind of how they, they connected it all together. But it was named because it reminded somebody of the Golden Horn, that part of the Sea of Marmara going to the Bosphorus where Istanbul is and all that. So, so anyway, the Golden Gate, beautiful, evocative name, um, but it crushed the imagination of an 11-year-old uh, because it's named for a place, uh, not a paint color. But here's the thing that I find fascinating about the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, it's constantly corroding. It's constantly, it's strong. Uh, uh, in 1987, 300,000 people got on the Golden Gate Bridge, Bridge at the same time. And the Golden Gate Bridge, if you've been on it, you drive, it kind of goes up and then goes down. It was flat. It flattened out. They were so freaked out about that that they wouldn't let the other 500,000 people who wanted to get on the bridge and walk across it get near it. It was not going to fall down, though, because they built it so strong, and yet it's constantly corroding and needs to be repainted. And no, they don't start at one end and paint it, and when we get to the end, start again. They're constantly patching it everywhere, and in the last, it's 88 years old now, but in the last, you know, uh, about 30 years, they've, they've been able to control some of the way it corrodes. They have a very methodical way of doing that. 46 full-time people. 13 of them iron workers. Now, you didn't come here for an infomercial on the Golden Gate Bridge, I know. Though it is fascinating, you've got to admit. Um, but it's constantly corroding and being repaired. I, I, I find that fascinating. It's a, it's, an, it's a nonstop job for now a generation, several generations of workers. Okay, so let me tie this in to another uh, uh, you know, kind of odd, uh, interesting factoid. Uh, are you familiar with the term wabi-sabi? It's not a bar in Cabo. It is, it is an interesting concept uh, out of the Japanese culture. And uh, it's a view of life defined by impermanence and imperfection. And it's a very big part of how Japanese people view the world. And we've adopted it, really. We don't use the term, but we find it really charming when things are sort of not quite perfect. The way we mix design features and, and furnishings, interior design, exterior design. Uh, there's a house on top of a building at UCSD. That's a wabi-sabi sort of thing. Really, that's not really permanent, I think. You know, uh, It's not conventional for sure. But the concept is this. Nothing lasts, nothing is finished, nothing is perfect. Can you resonate with that? Nothing lasts, nothing is finished, nothing is perfect. I see wabi-sabi as a fantastic redemptive analogy. Let me explain that. A redemptive analogy is something in a culture that prepares it for the gospel. Every culture has these really interesting uh, redemptive analogies built into it, and they perhaps don't know it. So if you go to another culture and you say, how can I possibly tell these people about the gospel, about Jesus, about the God who loves them and has gone to the cross for them and atoned for their sins and invites them to receive him by faith and will return in glory and create a new heaven and a new earth. How do I penetrate this culture? See, because some cultures seem impenetrable. And yet, and yet, every culture has within it redemptive analogies. And I wish I had time to give you more of those illustrations, but I'll just use this one. So the world as we know it doesn't last, it isn't yet finished, and it's not perfect, right? Uh, and this is actually a great way to talk to people in Japan about why the gospel matters. Uh, of all things, uh, one of the ministries that's making headway in Japan is Young Life. Uh, not because it's an American thing, but because it comes alongside people and builds bridges, authentic bridges of relationship over which significant truth crosses. Uh, and it's, it's led by Japanese people. Um, it's very fascinating. But that's one of the touch points, right? Yeah, the world as we know, it doesn't last, it's not finished, it isn't perfect. Can we talk? We talk about that yearning in you that wants it to be longer, 
than the short life it is. Wants it to be finished and have a sense of completeness. Wants it to be more than the imperfection that you live with every day. So our focus today in this series that we're doing on living a virtuous life is uh, on faithfulness. Faithfulness. Uh, Faithfulness. What comes to your mind when you hear the word faithfulness? Trust, loyalty, uh, perhaps beliefs. I'm faithful to beliefs. Uh, Behaviors. I express my belief in in things because I am faithfully committed to them. Uh, What comes to your mind? Uh, Confidence in a person or a group or an ideology, a technology. I can always depend on, you know, something like that. What comes to your mind when you think of faithfulness? Do you think of perfection? Faithfulness doesn't necessarily have to be perfect, right? It just needs to be aligned. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. How do, you, how do we understand faithfulness in a world that's constantly corroding and where nothing lasts, nothing is finished, and nothing is perfect? Well, we start with God's faithfulness and its impact on us. I will build my life upon your love. It is a strong foundation. The, the previous song, uh, I, I, you are not finished with me yet. You're still working on me faithfully. Hebrews 11.1 1 says it this way, Now faith is the assurance in what we hope for and confidence about what we do not see. Faith is assurance in what we hope for and confidence about what we do not see. I'm looking at that slide up on the, projected on the wall. I feel like I should be going like this. It's, I can see it pretty much. Um, what comes to your mind when you, when you read that? Faith is the assurance of what we hope for, confidence about what we do not see. Where do you get this assurance? You just kind of, you know, stand up straighter and say, okay, I'm going to have the assurance. No, this word, this wonderful word, uh, hypostasis, is that the Lord himself, God in Christ, stands under us and supports us. He is our firm foundation. Uh, all 300,000 people uh, were wondering, oh no, is this one person too many on the venerable Golden Gate Bridge? No, it's a firm foundation. They could have had another two people who would have been fine, I'm sure. You know. Now faith is assurance because God is upholding us. In what we hope for, well, what do we hope for? The, the writer of Hebrews in the, in the previous 10 chapters has been describing for us our hope. How God has spoken to the world through prophets and priests, and now he's spoken to the world through his son. And, and Hebrews is one of the most magnificent integrations of, of biblical theology we have. Obviously written by somebody who is deeply immersed and knowledgeable about what we would call the Old Testament the law, the prophets, the writings. And someone now who's had an experience of God's fulfilled promise to send the Messiah, the Messiah, Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews captures this and, and it says, this is amazing, isn't it? Faith is the assurance of what we've always hoped for and now what we've seen in our own time. And confidence about what we still do not see. And I love the fact that this is one of those words... Um, uh, the, 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 the word confidence, it, it, the phrase is pragmatic confidence. And pragmatic is just lifted right out of the Greek. Uh, and, and we have it as an English word. So we have this pragmatic confidence. Pragmatic, meaning it's practical. It's doable. Why? Because it's built on something dependable. We are a pragmatic nation, and that's a big problem sometimes. Because pragmatic says, what works down the street? Let's do it here. Hey, what's that church doing? Let's do what they're doing. What's that company doing? Let's do what they're doing. And pragmatic uh, is like a clock that's right twice a day if it doesn't work. And if you hit it just right, it was awesome. But the rest of the time, not so much. But pragmatic, meaning we've established a firm foundation. We know it's true. We have absolute assurance that we cannot fail. All of a sudden, pragmatic means, well, let's march. Let's apply it. Let's lean into it. You're sitting on a chair. Nobody has been hovering above it the entire morning. 
pragmatic confidence in what we do not see. I don't exactly know what you're doing, Lord, but I know you're doing it. And for that, I give you honor and glory and praise. I will trust in you alone. So in Christ, God supports us and gives us pragmatic confidence. This is the incredible declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the basis for living a virtuous life. Because I just don't have it in me, do you? I just don't quite have what it takes to live the virtuous life I aspire to. If I have any doubts about that, I can simply turn to Janet and say, Janet, how am I doing? Oh, look at the time. I think I got to go now. I got to go meet my perfect friends at CBS. No. Um, oh, that's right. Nobody's perfect. No, it's, it's the fact that God himself is doing this in us. In spite of the fact that we don't last in some ways, we're not finished and we're not perfect. And therefore, we are sure of what we hope for, certain of what we cannot see. And so faithfulness is practical faith. It's applied faith based on a firm foundation, unassailable truth, and now pragmatically, confidently lived out in the real world. Demonstrated for us by Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. That's his whole title. If you've seen that little phrase, ichthus, and a little fish thing, it's been marked in every possible way you can imagine on bumper stickers. But ichthus, a fish. But interesting, it becomes an acronym for Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Those, the, the first letter of each of those words, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, in Greek spells ichthus, fish. That's why the early believers would greet each other in places that were dangerous to be a believer, with they just make a, 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 a swoosh kind of a thing, and somebody else might complete it and say, ah, yeah, yeah, you too. So faithfulness is practical faith demonstrated by Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. So the first, if that's the, the setup here, uh, then, then what's the, the first big idea that presents itself to us? Well, that faithfulness is serving God who redeems, repairs, and restores His creation. We're called into a relationship. To, so to serve God is not to be humiliated and demeaned. Hey, good news, I'm promoting you. You're my servant. Or rather, pr- good news, I'm promoting you. You have ever more responsibility and freedom to make creative decisions that will advance what we're doing here. So every, every executive, every leader in any organization is really just a chief servant. Our trustees are the chief servants of our church. Our staff are the servants of the church. The most mature members in this church are the servants of the church. The most mature people in any church are the ones saying, hey, we're not the primary audience, are we? The people who don't know Jesus are the primary audience, but we're the core congregation. We're the core community reaching our primary audience. Most churches in America have that flipped. We are the primary audience. Who's going to be faithful to us? It's a complete misappropriation of the gospel. It starts with this yelping, whiny sort of a proclamation that we're we're not going to last. We're not finished. We're not perfect. Rather than saying, isn't it great that though God is not finished with us yet, he is faithful to us. That we, <laughs> we're not finished in any way. We're not going to last on our own. He is the one who is our champion. And isn't it great that God comes a, a, alongside and, and even within, by faith, imperfect people and transforms them. So faithfulness calls us into this incredibly magnificent privilege of serving God. The God who is redeeming, repairing, and restoring his creation. His word is eternal, and it turns out so are we. What two things in this world will last forever? The word of God and people. Think about that. After this world is done and a new world and a new heaven has been revealed, you don't have to worry about what you're going to wear ever. It's a forever sense of I'm in the presence of God and I'm clothed in his righteousness. God's word is eternal, so are we. God is at work in Christ restoring us to faith. Why restoring us? Because every human being has faith in something or someone. But he's restoring us to a faith that gives us assurance and confidence. It's not just based on human charisma or, or pleasant, appropriate circumstances that make it, makes it possible for me to really be settled in. Uh, we, we started painting our house this week. I say we euphemistically and figuratively. Hector started painting our house this week. Uh, and it's a disaster. 
One minute we're having a pleasant conversation with Hector. Next minute our house is a disaster. It all started with the power washing. Have you ever seen anybody power wash a house desperately in need of paint? Once you start, you'll be power washing all of San Diego, San Diego County, Southern California. You can't stop power washing because stuff blows off and it's a mess. And this is clean, but oh my gosh, there's just all this debris everywhere. And then they start painting and everything is taped up and there's plastic on the windows and you feel like, a, let me out of here. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, wow. We're restoring that house to what it is supposed to be. We, every human being has faith and we're being restored into a, a right alignment of what that faith is in. We were made for faith. You don't have to ever say to any human being, no matter how antagonistic they are toward what you believe in Christ, you don't have to try to talk them into having faith. You just have to watch them. And you have to look at that redemptive analogy that represents their life and say, hey, I notice you have a lot of faith in this. I notice you have a lot of faith in that. You seem to put an immense amount of faith in your capacities or that this money, when it comes through, is going to make everything better and different. You're looking for something that isn't going to happen that way. Your faith will never be satisfied until it's satisfied by Christ. And so faithfulness is serving him because his word is eternal, he's eternal, we're eternal. And in Christ, we become a beautiful redemptive analogy of practical restoration. Okay, so this is all Japanese morning here. Uh, We'll be serving sushi right after the service because I want to give you an example, another example out of Japanese culture. Um, have you heard of the term kintsugi? Kintsugi. You're all familiar with it. I'll just, I just know you know about it. So I'm going to talk as if you do. Uh, two concepts. Kintsugi means golden seams, and kintsukori means a, a golden repair. So what happens is, and you've, you have seen it, you just don't know you've seen it. You've seen it in beautiful boutiques. You've seen it in museums. All it means is when something beautiful, ceramic, is dropped and broken, this beautiful lacquered bowl, Somebody came up with a great idea of repairing it with lacquer and some gold. And you've seen it now, now you go, oh, I've seen this with the little lines of gold going through. And now it's on fabric, it's on stationery, it's all over the place. It's this beautiful concept is that you have this golden seam that actually complements the original creation. You have this golden repair. You think, wow, somebody was really sharp to be able to put that together, lacquer it to glue it, and then to, to put that golden paint, that, 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 that you know, gold leaf uh, in that thing. The gospel reveals God's plan for this brief, unfinished, and imperfect world. It's a kintsugi on the part of Jesus. It's, 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 it's a kintsukuri on the part of Jesus. Our fractures are now features of his grace and love. He's repairing us and restoring us. It's not to say, I think I'll go do something really bad so I can have a new golden scar but rather you're saying, isn't it amazing that God takes my, my you know, really wabi-sabi world and does something so beautiful in the midst of it? <clears throat> Years ago, uh, a man named Harry Ironside, that's an awesome name. Second only to the guy named Billy Jack Blankenship. You walk in a room and they do it, Billy Jack's here. Sounds awesome. If you say, hey, Harry Ironside just walked in, oh yeah. Well, Harry Ironside was a guy that became a follower of Jesus uh, 50, 80 years ago in L.A. And he started preaching. And he would preach on the streets of L.A. And hundreds of people would gather. And he became a pastor, became a really, uh, he was kind of a Billy Graham of his day. And uh, somebody challenged him one time and said, hey, um, I, I want to debate you about what you're talking about. <clears throat> Harry Ironside uh, said, all right, glad to debate you, but here's my condition. Wherever you want to meet, whenever you want to meet, I'm just asking you to bring somebody who, and he starts describing all the wretchedness of humanity, all the things that we can do to, to really undermine our own well-being. He took every possible human sin and said, I want you to bring this person, this person, this person, this kind of woman, this kind of man, and have them come with you. And I want you and me to listen to them before we have our debate, talk about how your point of view has changed their life and made it whole. I will guarantee that I will bring 100 of those men and women and let them tell their story. Now, he wasn't boasting, I'm, I'm bigger and badder than you. I'm going to wipe the floor with you in this debate. Rather, he's saying, the debate is sort of a relevancy, isn't it? 
arguing about our ideas. Why don't we just have some people tell their story? Some real examples of Kintsugi and Kintsukori. A golden seam, a golden repair in a wabi-sabi world. Our fractures are now features of His grace and love. Paul writes to the Ephesians saying, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I have a work for this person to do, and once they come to know me and put their faith in me, and I apply the seams and the repairs necessary, transforming them from the inside out, not just superficially, cosmetically, I have a work for them to do. When I meet a person who doesn't know Christ, I think, what's the work that God wants to do in them and through them? And this initial barrier, if they, if they collapse this barrier and trust him, Oh, the work he's going to do in them and through them. And it's so hard. How do you explain that to somebody? But I have been in these odd conversations with people. Odd because I'm having this conversation with them thinking, they don't even really have a category for this. I'm saying to them, you know, when you follow Jesus, this is what's going to happen. And they're going, hey, hey, you're kind of getting a little ahead of me. I go, no, I'm not presuming anything. I'm just saying, when you follow Jesus, this is what's going to happen. This is what it's going to be like. And so the Proverbs uh, writer, Proverbs 3, 3 to 4 says, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Cling to it. It's faithfulness as in endurance, pragmatic, assured endurance to be part of the great things that God is doing. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. In fact, bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God. Amen. Why? Because you're appropriating what is yours in Christ. By God's goodness and righteousness, fulfilling his promise. It's not about aggrandizing you or me. It's about saying, look at this great God and this golden seam and this golden repair. And so Jesus asked the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, that's a title for the Messiah out of Daniel. When the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? And so faith is dealing with life sensibly and realistically following God's instructions. There's nothing and no one more trustworthy, sensible, or realistic than Jesus. That's why we can say faithfulness is serving God who redeems, repairs, and restores his creation. Where does that lead us? Well, second point, we can be faithful because of God's faithfulness to us in Christ. Before we had a clue of our need, he had a solution for our need. It's always the initiative on God's part. And so we see in Lamentations, that, that profound, moving uh, book about the people coming out of exile and captivity and, and just unburdening their hearts. Most of the, not most, I would say a majority of the Psalms are Lamentations of some sort. I hope you have room in your life for Lamentations. Not whining and moaning, demanding more, expressing your entitlement ever more creatively and compellingly, but rather lamentation, not, not, not having a perpetual pity party, but lamentation is calling it what it is. Lord, I'm in a pit, Psalm 40. And then the awareness, several lines later, oh, <laughs> but you're in the pit with me. <laughs> So when we lament, we recognize God's grace and presence, right? So the writer of Lamentations says this, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. We won't last given the way we're doing things. We won't be finished, and we're certainly imperfect. But in the midst of that, because of God's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassion never fails. His compassions, his constant examples, applications of compassion never fail. They endure, right? They're faithful. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And you could say, so that I can endure. So that I, too, can learn to be faithful. We are entirely dependent on God's great love. His faithfulness sustains us. And so he has all authority in heaven and on earth to say, you can count on me. It's not an empty promise. Vote for me. You can count on me. We don't go there anymore. We just go, okay, whatever. What's the least of all evils that I can possibly check a box for? 
We do that in so many things in life now. I don't know if it really works, but I've got to have insurance. Okay, fine, I'll do this. I don't know if it's going to work, but I'll do this. Because we realize in this wabi-sabi world, at some point, it's a whole lot easier to promise than it is to keep it. But Jesus does, and therefore he has authority in heaven and on earth to say, you can count on me. You can count on me to love you, save you, equip you, be with you always. Nothing and no one can separate you from my love. I assume your obedience can, but why would you want to disobey when I'm giving you life? You can count on me to prepare a place for you in my kingdom as I return for you. You can count on me through my Holy Spirit to prepare you for my kingdom. So can you count on God to be faithful? Yes, you can depend on him. If you're not, why not? Just depend on him. Just trust in him. What's, what's the downside? Is it, your fantastic plan is going to get sidelined for a while? Your otherwise perfect life is going to get slowed down? No. Can God count on you to be faithful? Can others count on you to be faithful? We've got to receive his light before we can reflect his light. One of the things about painting a house that I learned is that <clears throat> as soon as the, 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 the basic coat of paint, before all the trim happens, but you know, the basic coat of paint goes on, whether you have a stucco or plaster or shingle, whatever. When that initial coat of paint goes on, the, the house glows because the pigments are so rich in the house that it's reflecting light. And you think, well, why wasn't it glowing before? It was the same color. We're painting our house the same color. All black. Just the whole thing is all, you know, murdered out, as they say in, in, in auto talk. Um, and Hector, genius of all things paint, said, well, you know, when paint gets old, it sucks in light. When paint's new, it reflects light. Ooh, that reminds me. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Oh, I get it. As I'm renewed in Christ, I'm reflecting his love. I'm reflecting his light. Like the Golden Gate Bridge, we need constant renewal. Uh, last week, our dear brother in Christ, Oliver Jones, Bill Jones, some of you know him, uh, went to be with the Lord, 88 years old, same age as the Golden Gate Bridge, and substantial. Uh, if you didn't know Oliver Jones, I, I feel really sorry for you. Uh, because he was one amazing dude, uh, one of the original faculty at UCSD. Uh, he was one of those guys that could just look at you and tell you stuff about you, right? He was just an incredible observer, awesome diagnostician. He was one of those uh, amazing, wonderful people that every medical school needs to launch because he was so resilient and resourceful. They said at one point, Oliver, we want you to teach pediatric genetics. And he's like, what is it? That's a new thing. We want to be covering that. Okay. He went and got a text on pediatric genetics. I said, how did that go? And he said, for the first year, it was fantastic until all the students caught up with me. But by then, so much other research had been done on pediatric genetics, we got to hire somebody who was an expert on that. The, the medical school was growing, so you know, I could cover the bases. He was a phenomenal, phenomenal physician. Uh, he and Paula started a school in Zambia. I mean, oh, really, in your spare time? Um, one time, we were talking, and he was talking about uh, his, fun, his most fun thing to do, which is making Indian flutes. Now, Janet and I had been in the, in the Grand Canyon and in this gift shop, you know, uh, near the El Tovar Hotel, where I'm hearing all this interesting music. I said, what is that? That's neat. And it said, oh, it's Indian flute music, and the greatest of all Indian flute players is Carlos Nakai. I said, whoa, Carlos Nakai, awesome. So I bought the tape and drove Janet crazy constantly playing it. The CD, rather. And she's like, enough. Uh, Carlos, and you were like this, not so much me. Okay, so, so now, it's a few years later, I'm talking to Oliver, and I said, like uh, Indian flutes, like Carlos Nakai. He goes, yeah, he, has, he plays my flutes. I'm like, Carlos Nakai plays your flutes? Are you kidding me? He goes, no, no. You know? I'm like, oh, wow. I could go on and on about his stories, but... but Oliver was the paragon of faithfulness, as, as is Paula, as the family. Uh, can you imagine being blessed to be his son-in-law, like Dan Mashburn over here is? Uh, Dan could give you endless stories about his faithfulness as a, as a father, a husband, a father-in-law, a grandfather. Uh, people could tell you endless stories about what an amazing experience it was, and I know I'm overusing the word amazing, but what a wonderful experience it was to be under his leadership 
as a medical student. See, faithfulness is pragmatic, and when it's linked to the person of God, it's reflective of his light. Oliver wasn't just a good dude. He was a beloved child of God. And he had that incredible humility that comes with a person who walks with God. Confident, resourceful, resilient, fun to be with, serious but doesn't take himself all that seriously, uh, makes you feel like you're the smartest person in the room when you talk to him. And you realize, wow, that's a deep faith reflecting out of this man. Can you count on God to be faithful? Can God count on you to be faithful? Can the people in your life count on you to be faithful? Not perfect. One of the last things I said to Oliver was that, Oliver, you're just an amazing man. You're almost worthy to be married to Paula. Just because I knew he would laugh thinking, you're right about that. You know, I'm, I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm so aware of my own imperfection. So we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about the faithfulness of God released in the life of a person learning to endure in that faithfulness. He's preparing us to be a people he can depend on to reflect his kingdom. Life isn't always easier when you say, Lord, you can count on me. I can almost guarantee life will not be easier if you say, Lord, you can count on me. Why? I thought he made all things better, all things new. Yes, he does. But there's immediate pushback in this world when you say, Lord, I want to serve you. You know that. If you ever tried to have a conversation with somebody you love deeply about the Lord, if in a social situation you ever spoke up and said, well, you know, I'm not sure I see it that way. In fact, I know I don't see it that way. I would just say that I think this is the case. How about the Archbishop of L.A. right now? Very controversial thing. I think it's a bad move not to offer communion to anybody, but his principle is profound. He's standing up in a very liberal archdiocese, and he's saying, uh, a person who supports abortion um, needs to repent before they receive communion. And you might say, well, it's, who does he to judge somebody? I'm just saying, he's trying to take his theology to a place that is faithful. He's not being judgmental. He's simply saying, repent. How tough is it? It'd be like saying to somebody, put the knife down, the gun down, and I'll serve you communion. And you might, I don't mean to offend you if you feel like, well, that's a whole different conversation. I'm just saying that the way this works out in real life is it's not always easy to say, Lord, you can count on me. This man, this archbishop, is simply being faithful to the teachings that he represents in that church. And to be faithful to that means he's got a lot of people in L.A. saying, well, I'm never going to go back to church in L.A., and I can do everything I can to have you removed as the archbishop. All right. Actually, he might even be a cardinal now. But It wasn't easy for Jesus. It won't be easy for us. If you want to get more perspective, read the rest of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. It did not end well for most of the people who live by faith. The longer story, it always ends really well. But the intermediate story, not so much. Which brings us to our third point. If the first one is that faithfulness is serving God who redeems, repairs, and restores his creation, the second being that we can be faithful because of God's faithfulness to us in Christ. The third and final point is this. Faithfulness is being God's is believing God's will for you is happening right now. Faithfulness is believing that God's will is happening for you right now. You might think, well, that's kind of obvious. Right. Not if you're an eighth grader. Not if you're a kid in most Christian schools. I'm not criticizing Christian schools at all. I'm just saying the point being that in most churches and Christian schools, somebody will, with all enthusiasm, say, it's really important for you to live in the center of God's will, to pursue God's will. I was talking to somebody recently who said they kept hearing that all through college and university or crew or someplace, and they said it was so guilt-producing and confusing because they didn't quite know what that meant. Well, here's what it means. Faithfulness is believing God's will for you is happening right now. If you have Christ in you, you are in his will. Now, you can disobey his will with obvious disobedience toward things he says in his word. But if you are just getting up every day and saying, Lord, it's your day, and you're jumping into the day, you are in God's will. Again, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about a relationship of transformation based on God's faithfulness to us. Now, if you're doing something, again, obviously contrary to God's word, you might say, hey, that is, that is really putting you at cross-purposes with God's will. Cheating on your tests, 
on your taxes, uh, doing whatever you're doing that is obviously against God's purposes and against his word. He's putting you at cross purposes with his will. Repent. Realign. Redirect. Uh, be renewed. But we, we've made it such a mystery for people to say, what is God's will for my life? And so it becomes this postponed future event. Someday I'll know the will of God. I don't know what will happen in the meantime. And then only God knows if I've made six different bad turns. And when I get there, he goes, oh, you, back there in eighth grade, you missed it. That situation, that person you married, that, that job you took, that this or that, it was really good and everything, but man, you missed my will. It's not going to be like that. How could it be like that? We're not God. We're not omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. We don't know all things at all times. We depend on him. We say, Lord, in the midst of this life I'm living, may your will be done. As in heaven, so on earth, may your will be done. That is all you need to say to be in the will of God. And what happens is your conscience will be ever more um, fine-tuned to navigating that and aligning with that. Not false guilt, oh, I'm not perfect, but, but real guilt, when I know I've done that wrong, I will confess my sin and I'll be restored. So believing that God's will for you is happening right now just means that his will is that you live in his love and walk in his grace today. And as you fail, as somebody points out your failure, you say, oh, my bad. In my case, I'm, 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 um, I'm the first to admit it. I'm just the last one to know is my problem. So until somebody says, you know, you were kidding, but that really offended that person, or that really hurt their feelings, uh, oh, I'm so sorry. And now he realize everybody knows this but me. And, you know, so maybe you experience that too. All we do is we say, okay, Lord, here I am again. His will is that you live in his love, walk in his grace today. So faithfulness redeems a wabi-sabi world painted in colors we weren't expecting. Think about it. Your expectations of life keep bumping into the realities of life. You go, hey, wait a minute. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Right. But the designer of the Golden Gate Bridge thought this color was complimentary of all the wonderful golden burnt amber hills, burnt umber hills surrounding the Golden Gate. Oh, okay. Way to go. A design feature upsetting the world of every 11-year-old on the planet who's a literalist. But that's what it's like in a wabi-sabi world, painted in colors we weren't expecting. God is with us. So being faithful changes you for the better, even if it always isn't easy. Even if it's not often easy. Don't confuse better and good with easy. As C.S. Lewis described the descent into hell, the softly padded treads. If you've ever walked barefoot on a beautiful wool carpet, oh, you're walking on clouds. And the road to hell is that beautiful carpeted, ever-descending pathway to oblivion. Nothing to disturb you, nothing to distract you, just soft and easy. Now, don't flip and say, oh, everything in the Christian life has to be hard to count. No. There's a certain ease when you walk with Christ, but there's a lot of pushback. It's good, it just isn't easy in terms of what you want to expect in this world. So it changes you for the better, even if it isn't easy. Three quick ideas. It changes how you think about God and life and how you pursue both. It just changes the way you think. You start reading things, having conversations, and sitting under the teaching of great teachers. You, you, you find that you have mentors and friends and colleagues. Iron sharpens iron sort of a thing. And all of a sudden you realize, I'm thinking in a whole better way than I've ever thought before. It changes how you think about God and life. It's the power of God and his word and his spirit released in us. I have new thoughts. My mind is getting bigger. My perspective is getting bigger. I'm thinking with more nuances. That's not, I'm, I'm not diluting or, or compromising the truth, but I'm seeing more nuances. It's not, everything is not binary. Everything is, is, is that I'm in the context of God's word. I'm saying, I see the nuances here. I see why Jesus would say to the woman caught in adultery, you know, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. And all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, the lady pouring the ointment on him in that dinner party we talked about last week, very awkward. And he says, your sins are forgiven. You go, that, that, that can't be. He's defying 
the law. No, he's applying the law. The powerful nuance of this is who you are in Christ. This is what you're meant for in Christ. Let go of what you don't need. Let go of the anchor and float, right? So then it also changes how you manage your life in obedience to God's word. It reframes your priorities, how you face problems, how you make your plans. Your theology matters. Living life doesn't mean there's only one way to do everything. There's many. It does mean that your theology matters in doing whatever you do. Ask why a lot. Why am I doing this? Why would I do this? How does this square with God's word? What is my theology? So my theology would allow me to say, I don't want the government telling my wife or my daughters what to do with their body. My theology also says I want to protect the unborn. Right? The theology that comes alongside the rules of the road, the rules of the land, and sometimes affirms them, agrees with them, promotes them, or says, no, that's just not right. It's a process question at that point. What's the rightest way to do it? Should we be out of Afghanistan? Sure, of course. 20 years is probably enough. Should we do it in the way we're doing it? Mm, I don't think so. If, you were, if I was interviewing an Afghani, they would say it's not a good process. Agree with your big goal and plan, but the process, man, couldn't it have been a little bit more effective? See, this is what we're up against when we, as we apply our theology. What does the Bible say about that? It says this, 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 this. As I bring them all together, I see an alignment. And this is what we're going to do. Finally, it changes how you invest your life in something bigger than you. Because Jesus stands under us, we can stand up and step out for him. You start to invest yourself in stuff that might be inconvenient, even expensive, annoying at times. And you can even fail. Wait a minute, Lord, I did all this, I sacrificed all that, I suffered this, only to fail? Right. I needed you to do this. It didn't work. But something worked in you, didn't it? You've grown, you're stronger. So how we invest our time, talent, money, values reveals our faithfulness. It's blessing others even when your time, your energy, your money is tight. It includes self-care and caring for others. They're complementary. But faithfulness always connects us to the heart of God, our own heart, and the hearts of other people. And if you find that your heart is going to be connected more deeply to the heart of God, that you resonate more deeply with His presence in your life, His purpose for you, if your heart isn't feeling right within you, if your heart isn't really feeling right in alignment with the people closest to you, that's a check. I either need a little bit more self-care here, or I need a lot more care for other people. This is part of what faithfulness allows us to do as we grow in a very complicated world. I want to end you with, by saying this to you. I've been deeply moved by how you faithfully care for the needs of others. Looking at you, I'm, I'm deeply moved by how I see you faithfully caring for the needs of others. I wish I could take the time to tell all the little stories I know about almost every one of you here. And I can assume I know about some of you who don't know. Keep doing that. Keep at that. It's worth it. It won't be easy. It's worth it and it's better because you are God's hope in a world that needs it desperately. We're going to talk about hope in two weeks, but right now, that faithfulness is the preliminary necessary behavior to bring hope. Without faithfulness, there is no hope. We'll, we'll pick this up in a couple of weeks. So thank you for being people of faithfulness because it inspires me to faithfulness. It inspires everybody who sees you to greater faithfulness. So Lord Jesus, that's my prayer for me, uh, for my brothers and sisters here. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the way you've blessed us in so many ways with people who can lead us in worship. Uh, for people who can lead us in managing our lives. For people who can lead us into deeper engagement with your mission. Lord, as those people and their faces and names come to mind right now, we, we give you honor and glory and praise for them. We thank you for their enduring faithfulness, and we give you all credit that they have that capacity. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, as we uh, wrap up worship in a time of offering, uh, if you want to give a, an offering as in financial offering, you can do that on your way out. Uh, there's a, a box there on the wall that you can put in an envelope. But more importantly, it's a time of offering you to God, of, of sitting in the presence of Him while you're listening or singing along with the music, uh, letting the words move you, letting what you've heard in, in, in prayer and song and, and sermon uh, maybe 
connect some things for you, confront some things in you, comfort some things in you. Offer yourself to the Lord. It's so important we do that. That's, that's the secret of our renewal and our continued faithfulness. We, we, we bring in his light so we can reflect it, right? Let's continue worshiping the Lord. Bye. 
uh, that's, the, that's the cry of endurance again and again and again. That's the call of faithfulness again and again and again. Not more and more, better. It's saying just receive, believe, embrace. Relax into the, the embrace of God. He'll lift you up and he'll say, let's go. And you will draft on him wherever you go. He will give you what you need to do what he's calling you to do. So don't despair. If it's really hard because you're making it so, repent. If it's really easy because you're making it so, repent. Whatever it takes for you to come back to the Father in a way that allows you to be the beloved son or daughter that he has called you and equipped you and is sending you to be, start there. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us all, giving us his peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.